Good Tuesday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hope all of you are having a good week so far. Uh, Hard to believe tomorrow will be the middle of the week. Weeks go by quick. And hard to believe that we're almost close to being halfway through September. And before we know it, uh, fall uh, will be just around the corner. I'm looking forward to uh, fall. Well, um, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight with... um, the continuation of Christian D. Spigna's book, uh, The Found- Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. Well, our leadoff bonus question for tonight is the following. After graduating from Harvard, where did young Joseph Warren go afterwards? Well, um... This shouldn't come as a surprise, but it may actually have been uh, for the right reason to have uh, done so. He went back to his home uh, in Roxbury, or let alone the family farm in, where he grew up as a child. And by doing so, he uh, went back to uh, help out his mother and three brothers on the farm. This was his way of wanting to help return the favor after so much sacrifice had been made on his mother's part and seeing to it that he um, still was able to uh, not only attend Harvard, but graduate from there. And by coming home, uh, young Joseph himself served as a father-like figure to his three younger brothers, which I think was a very noble thing to do on his part. He was trying to fill an empty void in the aftermath of uh, their father's passing. So... By 1760, close to this time, it's been about five years since the elder Warren uh, passed away, but you know, even after five years, losing a loved one is still um, a hard thing to let go of. And no matter how, no matter what the circumstances were in terms of how one died in the 18th century, and the same can be said even in uh, today's modern world, Letting go of a loved one's passing is a very, um, it can be a very hard thing. So by the spring of 1760, Joseph Warren takes on a position, and what do you know, it's at his, uh, it's at the Roxbury Latin School where he attended before going on to Harvard. He accepted the position of master, well, What is a master? It's another uh, word for being a teacher, or another term, rather, I should say. So, teaching itself was a somewhat common first job for many Harvard graduates after finishing uh, school. And how ironic that John Adams himself did the same thing um, after graduating from Harvard by taking on a uh, teacher position. So... On April 11th of 1760, Joseph Warren is officially hired by Roxbury Latin School. And does anybody want to know how much um, Joseph Warren's going to be making? Well, it turns out that that Roxbury Latin would um, would pay him per one quarter of a year in the amount of 43 pounds, nine shillings, four pence. I'm not sure what 
that equivalent would be in today's money, but for one quarter of a year, that actually is uh, pretty good money. But you know what I think is even more remarkable about uh, Joseph Warren is that some of this income, he went about um, repaying his mom and for partial compensation on behalf of his Harvard tuition. I think it's fair to say that Joseph Warren is a very compassionate individual. That he, um, that his father obviously wanted him and his brothers to aspire to be um, successful, but yet at the same time, not to forget their humble roots. In other words, it's one thing to be successful, but don't get too big for your britches. In other words, you must always remember where you come from and don't get into um, a uh, system where you're chasing the almighty dollar and forgetting about how you got to where you were. Or, or for, you know, you must remember how you got to uh, be successful, but your success just didn't happen overnight. There were many other steps that it took to get to that present level um, moment in your life uh, and understanding where you're at. So in other words, we all have to start low on the totem pole, but we have to work our way up to the top. So what subjects did um, young Joseph Warren teach at Roxbury Latin? He taught the following, arithmetic, reading, Greek, Latin grammar, and writing. Well, if you're going to be a teacher, especially in this day and age, you've got to teach the whole nine yards. Sure, you may be uh, proficient in one subject, but it doesn't mean that you can't be just as good as in the just as good as in other fields. Sure, you might have be good at, at arithmetic, but hey, if you're going to be good at arithmetic, you got to be able to read. Um, you got to be able to read. In other words, you've got to read out um, math problems and say, hey, how am I going to dissect this uh, scenario? In other words, how am I going to go about understanding the formulas uh, and so forth? So, uh, by the fall of 1760, young Joseph Warren starts beginning to spend more time in Boston. And remember, Roxbury is just on the outskirts of Boston. It's only two miles. Cambridge, where Harvard is, is five miles. But in the fall of 1760, young Joseph Warren starts beginning to spend more time in Boston, where he becomes enthralled into the world of Freemasonry. What did Masonic organizations promote? Okay, we're going to find this out. Integrity, honor, and compassion. Well, as I just mentioned a moment ago, Doctor. Well, before he becomes an actual doctor, and the same will apply when he is a doctor, but even before he officially becomes a doctor, Joseph Warren is a very compassionate person. Would you say that by being compassionate that he will also be one of integrity and honor? Absolutely. So part two uh, to this uh, question involving uh, Masonic organizations and what they promoted is the following. What did Masonry itself offer Joseph Warren? Well, um, 
Two answers come to my mind. The opportunity to meet men of power and influence along with continuing to grow in his own moral self-development. So it's one thing to belong to an organization, but by doing so, you are establishing a greater ability of networking and connections. So on November 26th of 1761, Joseph Warren received membership into St. John's Masonic Lodge. And who were some unique people that uh, would go on to play prominent roles down the road? Who are a part of this Masonic Lodge? The answer is Paul Revere. Well, the answer is rather, I should say, are Paul Revere and John Hancock. True or false, were there any major medical schools in colonial America after Joseph Warren graduated from Harvard? Now, the answer is false. But ironically, in colonial America, one would need to study for two years in order to, to practice medicine. Two years might as well be the equivalent of uh, going to medical school for maybe seven years. And eventually, uh, Philadelphia would become the, uh, the city of Philadelphia would be the city where uh, young men, especially men, would go to become doctors in America. Now, if you truly wanted to um, become a doctor, if you were wealthy enough or you came from a well-to-do family, you could go overseas to um, England or Scotland to learn how to become a doctor there. So, uh, to become a skilled doctor, what would Joseph Warren himself have to do? Well, it's an easy answer. You undergo an apprenticeship with an established physician. In other words, an established physician being one who has um, strong credibility. Um, An established physician is one who has made a successful name for himself in his community, uh, but elsewhere... um, whether it's in colonial America or overseas. So who would Joseph Warren become apprenticed to? None other than Dr. James Lloyd, who was one of Boston's most well-to-do physicians and was very well socially connected to having lots of financial resources. He, had, he himself had received a first-rate, or should I say, top-flight medical education. In Boston, he, um, Dr. James Lloyd studied under Dr. John Clark. While in, while in London, he studied under Drs. William Cheselden and Samuel Sharp. It's one thing to study under one doctor, but Dr. Lloyd studied under three doctors total, one in America and two in England. Dr. Lloyd, I think it's fair to say, uh, transformed the practice of medicine in Boston. He was a big advocate for smallpox inoculations. Did Joseph Warren choose wisely when it came to having Dr. Lloyd as his mentor? I would think so. Uh, If anybody has any objections to that, then all I can say is something is not right with those individuals. There was more to the apprenticeship itself besides studying medicine. Well, 
how can there be more to an apprenticeship other than just studying the practice of, or studying medicine in general? Well, it turns out that through Dr. Lloyd, Joseph Warren learned how to conduct himself as a gentleman physician. Well, when I tend to think of um, one being a gentleman in colonial times, I tend to think of um, a gentleman as being someone who comes from a well-esteemed family that has money and has lots of um, land. That's part of the equation or answer, I should say. Now, in England, that would be the answer right there, having money and owning lots of land. But in colonial America, being a um, gentleman, or how should I say it, one conducting themselves as a gentleman, or in this case a gentleman physician, it would be based on factors like wealth, but also education. By learning under Dr. Lloyd's tutelage, this enabled um, Joseph Warren to successfully interact with Boston's elite and also learn how to entertain, demonstrate, not, well, not just entertain, but rather I should say demonstrate proper etiquette. So it's one thing to be successful in your line of work, but in order to be successful, you have to be able to um, know how to interact with the public at large. Uh, too often, I've heard of stories where there have been um, individuals who, who were very gifted people, but yet their social skills were lacking. So just because one had gotten excellent grades or straight A's all their life and were at the top of their graduating class in high school or let alone college, it didn't automatically mean that they were going to be successful down the road for the rest of their life. I know that might sound like a harsh thing to say, but if you're going to be successful, you have to be as well-rounded as there is possible. Your success cannot just lie in one uh, facet of your life. So, um, Dr. Lloyd truly did transform Joseph Warren from being a farm boy to a respected town physician. Not that there's nothing wrong with being a farm boy, but I think it's fair to say that when Joseph Warren was growing up, the thought of becoming a physician probably was not on the top of his list. So, here's... Um, Another uh, good question that I can uh, ask you all. Once Joseph Warren's apprenticeship with Dr. Lloyd went full scale, did events taking place in Boston cause many people to start second-guessing their relationship with the Crown and Parliament? Uh, the answer is yes. During the French and Indian War, military costs had kept Boston's merchants, builders, and manufacturers afloat. In other words, those um, arenas of businessmen, or arenas of business, I should say, had enough um, supply and demand to keep their um, businesses going. But once the war ended, 
those um, businesses, especially those of the merchants and the builders and the manufacturers, their line of work was never the same. In other words, when war is over, demand for a certain good or for X, Y, and Z goods might not be what it was during the time of actual warfare. So, therefore, the Massachusetts economy as a whole starts to falter. And to make matters worse, there were more widows in Boston than anywhere else in colonial America. Well, the people of Massachusetts have gone to war now four times between 1689 and 1763. They've paid their dues, and especially with the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War, I think that it, it comes to the point where you have to say, hey, we've stuck our necks out for the crown and for Parliament. Are we being fairly compensated? I don't think so. So, this now... Um, leads to another uh, question or for you all with regards to uh, 101 government of Ma in Massachusetts. So here's another good bonus question. What was the most effective strategy for people in Boston to address their needs? It's a good, here's the answer by going to a town meeting or what we call a town hall meeting, which dealt with local problems to electing local officials and representatives to, low, to the lower house of the general court. The general court is the bicameral legislative body in Massachusetts at this time. Okay, bicameral, that means two houses, just like we have in modern day um, our modern-day government system. Of course, it's been around for 233 years, but it still is a bicameral legislature. You've got the House of Representatives being the lower house and the Senate being that upper body. So, the upper house in colonial um, Massachusetts day, or in the days of, colon of uh, colonial Massachusetts, the upper house would have been your council, the council would have been the uh, governing body whom advised uh, the governor. And even in Virginia, there, Virginia had a council, what, what was known as the Council of State. It was an eight-member body whom advised uh, the governor on what to support and what to oppose um, that the House of Burgesses had uh, drafted, being that lower body in Virginia, lower house body in Virginia. Now, um, then you have uh, what's called the House of Representatives being the um, assembly, being the lower um, house in uh, Massachusetts. That body was responsible for passing laws, to levying taxes, to appointing officers. Now we get to the freeholders. Who are, who are the freeholders? They are white men of property. They are... They are elected members of the assembly who also choose the council members. So in other words, these freeholders are the men who go about nominating X number of men who will serve on the governor's council. 
And it turns out that the governor of Massachusetts held more power over the legislature than anyone else in Massachusetts. Well, I think that probably might be the same that can be said in today's modern uh, times that, you know, a governor in any state is going to have more power over the legislature than anyone else below him or her. But that's not to say that a governor, him or herself, is still going to be restricted on what powers he or she can exercise versus what they can or cannot do. Now, in October of 1760, the changing of the guard uh, takes place in terms of um, in terms of uh, a new seat on the crown. In October of 1760, King George II dies on the throne after 34 years. Who replaces King George II? His grandson, George III, who was only 22 years old. Now, can you imagine being King, being George III and you're only 22 years old? Well, if we look at Queen Elizabeth II, you know, she's 94 years old. She's been um, the lead reign, uh, lead uh, monarch reigning over England since 1952, being the year, sadly, that her father, uh, George VI, uh, passed away. But Queen Elizabeth was 26 years old when she took over. Now, not to get ahead of the game with history and all that, but I do know that um, that Queen Elizabeth II, her great-great-great-grandfather was none other than King George III. Small world, to say the least. But anyways, back uh, to our primary focal point. But yes, in uh, October of 1760, George III replaces his grandfather. And what I do find interesting about King George II is that there is a county in Virginia known as King George County, which was named after uh, King George II. It's up in the uh, northern neck of Virginia. King George II's wife was Queen Caroline. We have a county in Virginia called Caroline County. So what do you know? King George II and Queen Caroline have a lot of uh, unique history in Virginia because they ha- we have counties named in honor of them. And when King George III takes over, his wife is Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg. Queen Charlotte is from Germany. And it is known as the House of Hanover. Well, what do you know? There's Hanover County in Virginia. We have a Hanover, New Jersey. There's a Hanover, Pennsylvania. Hanover, Maryland. You would be amazed to know just how many uh, German um, names there are, not just in Virginia, but in states like Ohio, Maryland, Pennsylvania, all connected to the House of Hanover. Royalty um, does produce a lot of unique um, historic, um, what do you call it, historic uh, trivia, to say the least. And there is a county in Virginia, I should point out, known as Mecklenburg County, named after uh, where Queen Charlotte hailed from, Mecklenburg, uh, Germany. Here's another little bonus uh, question for you. 
it turns out that this fella would be the only forefather who uh, who would go on to uh, sign our Declaration of Independence years later, being 1776. But what's ironic about this forefather is that he was the only one who actually got to witness King George III be officially coronated. That's none other than... Um, Boston uh, shipping uh, tycoon magnet John Hancock. Of course, when 1760, um, at the time when King George III is coronated in 1760, I, I think the thought of uh, the thought of even wanting to separate from England is not even on the books just yet. But by 1763, three years into King George III's reign. The French and Indian War, or that infamous Seven Years' War, in the aftermath of the war itself, England became the most formidable power in North America, especially with acquiring Canadian and French territory east of the Mississippi. Remember, uh, the French were fighting with the Indians against the British. The French and the Indians are defeated. The French have territory. But sadly, their territory is ceded, or their landholding rights, I should say, are ceded to England. Well, you would think that once the British acquire all of the French, all of France's territory, that they're going to be okay financially wise. I hate to say this, uh, the opposite it happens. The British Empire is deeply in debt. Does anybody want to take a guess how much this is? It's between 100 and 150 million pounds, but the answer is 120 million. I'm not sure what that would come out to in today's money, but it would be a lot. So to be in debt with over 120 million pounds, if you're in England or if you're an Englishman or in a member of parliament, you've got to start thinking to yourself now, how do we go about getting out of the red, meaning the deficit, and back into the uh, surplus column? Well, here's a good question, lead-off question for, that, um, for this dilemma. How would England go about implementing new legislative measures? Okay, for starters... Parliament's going to restrict westward expansion. And what do you mean by westward expansion? That is um, going into the Ohio Valley, where you've got Ohio, Kentucky, and even Tennessee, and what, um, and what we now might know of as uh, present-day West Virginia. Westward expansion would also include going into what we now know as present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we also, this might also even include Indiana and perhaps Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. Think about it, folks. Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. Those future five states are a part of what we now know as the Northwest Territory. So, yes, restricting westward expansion is going to have a huge uh, impact, especially amongst the well-to-do landholders who um, had, what do you call it, had acquired uh, territories in the Ohio Valley, um, western Pennsylvania, what we now know as Pittsburgh, into um, areas surrounding the Great Lakes. 
This will also include implementing new taxes and limiting the powers of provincial legislatures. Okay, provincial legislatures, you know, like, for example, the House of Burgesses in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, as, as well as Massachusetts legislature, for example. It should be safe to point out that in Massachusetts, those who supported the royal administration were Tories, whom gathered in the upper house, meaning the council, whereas the opposition congregated in the lower house, and those people were referred to as the Whigs. Well, given here, here's a good bonus question here, people, and this pertains to um, Joseph Warren. Given that Joseph Warren was so familiar with both sides of the political debate, would he still remain close friends to Dr. Lloyd? Well, what does Dr. Lloyd have to do with, with the political debate? Well, it turns out that Dr. Lloyd is a loyalist. Isn't that odd? Here, Dr. Warren studied under Dr. Lloyd, and now you have to think to yourself, how can... Dr. Warren be friends with Dr. Lloyd. Well, the bottom line is this. Dr. Warren is entitled to his own opinions and beliefs, just like Dr. Lloyd is and anyone else. But Dr. Warren now has to be very careful about what he says, because if Dr. Warren were to um, criticize Dr. Lloyd out in the open, it would... Um, set a bad example. In other words, Dr. Warren would be burning bridges not only with Dr. Lloyd, but perhaps with other members of the community who could take their business to another practice, say like Dr. Lloyd's, for example. So in other words, Dr. Warren knows that he can only say but so much, but at the same time, he also knows that whatever he says could or can and would be used against him. So, you know, it's one thing to say something, but you also have to know, okay, if I'm going to say something, I better ha know how to go about backing it up right. So, in the spring of uh, 1763, Joseph Warren completes his medical apprenticeship with Dr. Lloyd. He even opens his own practice in Boston, what kind of services do you think Joseph Warren um, now will go about providing to the public? He provides a variety of services ranging from treating venereal disease to reducing fractures and dislocations. Like Dr. Lloyd himself, Dr. Warren provided obstetrical care to pregnant women. And what kind of medicines do you think Dr. Warren would have used to treat um, an assortment of um, illnesses or what do you call it, typical medical occurrences of the time. Well, I'm going to tell you right now that there was no such thing as Robitussin or Advil or Tylenol, uh, Sudafed. We can rule all those out. But some, some common medicines that he would administer and patients ranged from opium, calamine, chalk, to cinchona bark. What, is, what would opium have been used for? It would have primarily been used as a cough suppressant. But it also could have been used to treat diarrhea and pain symptoms. 
think about this. Um, one could say that people probably didn't know any better back then, but if the doctors knew back then that opium was was um, successful in going about uh, treating a cough suppressant, then more power to them to use um, that medicine. Calamine was used to help soothe skin irritations. I think calamine is even still used today. Now, chalk, and when I think of chalk, of course, we all think of this. We think of using the chalk to write on the chalkboard. Not in this case. Chalk was used to ease, was treated for easing heartburn. So think about this. Chalk would have been like the equivalent of Rolaids or uh, Tums. And as for cinchona bark, that was used for combating fevers. I also know that uh, turmeric would have been used uh, for treating uh, joint pain, which can still be done in today's time. So we, you know, yes, we can say all we want about how we might. We're probably glad that maybe we weren't alive in the 18th century because think about it, no anesthetics to have knocked you out if you needed to have a tooth removed or to have uh, surgery, which is true. There would not have been any anesthetics at that time, but we do have to give the medical profession a lot of credit for at least going above and beyond in their day and time to to have done what they thought was best um, in, in, com- in finding remedies to treat common um, issues or common medical issues of the day. Well, did Dr. Warren make house calls? Yes. Some of his first clients ranged from family relatives, merchants, ship captains, tradesmen, believe it or not, to convicts, widows, slaves, and laborers. So the bottom line is his house calls were not confined to just one class of people. Another good bonus question here was the following. And this is an important one because this is gonna, we're going to learn about his first true serious medical test that, not, that didn't involve just one person but the greater community as a whole. Was a densely populated port town like Boston very vulnerable to an infamous disease known as smallpox? The answer is yes. One of the reasons why Boston could be so vulnerable to smallpox was that, for one, it was a prominent port town, but two, ships from various parts of the world would come into Boston very frequently to um, engage in uh, commerce activities. So it's one thing to engage in these commerce activities, but what could people be bringing from other parts of the world? Diseases. And one of them could be smallpox. So that that is something we've got to be very careful about because it, it's not going to take much to not only infect one person, but to start infecting multiple people. What was smallpox itself referred to as? mentioned in the book. I had never heard the term before, but it's an interesting one. It's referred to as the speckled monster. A menacing element, this is the way I, I interpreted it, 
The speckled monster was, in my eyes, was referred to as the menacing element that could explode at any moment to where fear itself would be replaced, would be placed at a distant second. So in other words, once more than one person got infected with this, the, the thought of living in fear over whether or not you would be infected wouldn't even occur because you would know automatically that it, would, that it would just be a matter of time or a short amount of time before you could be next. So it turns out in January of 1764, a smallpox outbreak did occur in Boston. And this was Dr. Warren's first public test as a physician. He put himself on the front lines of the outbreak so we're now, we should ask ourselves this question. Okay, if he has put himself on the front lines of this outbreak, what would be the closest facility, or would there even be a facility in general to go about administering smallpox inoculations? How many rooms would there be to uh, house those who have been infected by the disease? Okay. He set up a shop in Castle William, which is right on the outskirts of Boston, where smallpox inoculations would be administered. Now, I hate to tell you all this, but Castle William only has 48 rooms, but it held 500 infected patients. That's a lot of infected patients for for few for few rooms. I mean, we would think now in today's time, if you only had 48 rooms and you had over and you had 500 infected patients or more, you would think that that might be in a third world country. So Joseph Warren, um, three months afterwards, I should say, in April of 1764, Joseph Warren would administer smallpox inoculations. And one of them included uh, giving an inoculation to a young John Adams, who was almost 30 years old. And over time, this led to a great friendship. Warren himself inoculated hundreds of people. And what do you know? None of these people perished. The average recovery period at this time was about six to eight weeks and because of D Joseph Dr. Warren's success he made several new friendships and his practice expanded significantly roughly 5000 people received inoculations during this epidemic in, of 1764 and less than 1% died it does pay to get vaccinated people it, well, in this, in in these terms, inoculated, but it does pay to get inoculated because if you didn't get inoculated, not only would you have remained a carrier, but you would have infected other, several other people who probably would not have even had a chance to have gotten inoculated, and would have been a statistic. Doctor Warren emerged as a new leader, and he was seen by many as one who helped the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. He really did perform a miracle. And I may have mentioned to you all from a previous podcast about how, you know, when we think of martyrs, we think of those who die for a cause. 
we think of martyrs as people who who are willing to stand up for those who aren't able to have a say or who are struggling to search for identity or who just don't have what it takes to say even be able to stand up on their own two feet. Well, I still think of Dr. Warren as being his own version of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus Christ came to people as an ordinary person. He didn't come to people dressed in a top-of-the-line robe or let alone a crown. He didn't come in with the, the newest clothing that was a step above everyone else around him. He just came in as average Joe, wanting to look after those who were poor, who couldn't take care of themselves. And of course, as we all know, the Sadducees, uh, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, uh, the Jews, uh, people above, um, above the ranks of the poor saw Jesus as a threat. Of course, the Roman Empire did. We all know what happened. But the bottom line is, is that while Jesus performed so many miracles, his life sadly was still cut short by those who opposed him for all the wrong reasons. I can say that Joseph Warren, Dr. Joseph Warren, um, administering inoculations to not only just hundreds of people, but knowing that 5,000 people had received inoculation during the 1764 epidemic and knowing that less than 1% died, that's like the equivalent of Jesus Christ feeding a thousand, um, feeding thousands of people with the fish. So after all, it's safe to say that Dr. Joseph Warren and Jesus Christ themselves were uh, men who were known as uh, miracle performers. So um, here's another bonus question here. While the smallpox epidemic of 1764 was taking center stage in Boston, did Dr. Warren himself have relations or rather, I should say, did had Dr. Warren himself found time to court a woman? Well, the answer is yes. He courted an 18-year-old woman by the name of Elizabeth Hooton, who came from a wealthy family. Elizabeth's father was a well-to-do merchant who sadly died a few months before she and Joseph, Dr. Joseph Warren married. He sadly died at the age of 37, but left most of his estate to, her, to Elizabeth. I think it's fair to say that Dr. Warren's marriage to Elizabeth Hooton enabled him to escape past financial hardships. You know, remember folks, many people didn't live to be very old in this day and age, in that day and time. So I can't imagine being in Elizabeth Hooton's shoes and knowing that your father has died at age 37, even though he has left you a great part of his estate, it's still hard to fathom the thought, though, of losing a parent at age 37. Today, that's way too young. Of course, in 1764, living to be 37 or, or almost 50, that was old age. But still, it's a very um, sad thing to realize that did go on. Um, a fellow by the name of uh, Reverend Samuel Cooper 
will marry this couple, but he is going to become more aligned to having pro-Whig stances towards the Crown's policies. And this is important because for Dr. Joseph Warren, this connection to Reverend uh, Samuel Cooper and the church they attend, being that of the Congregational Church, will become an early stepping stone, or I should say cornerstone, towards developing anti-British views. It is through Dr. Joseph Warren's wife, Elizabeth, that connections amongst Boston's Anglican elite become more prevalent. Well, how is it that Dr. Joseph Warren and his wife, Elizabeth, are of a congregational uh, faith, whereas his wife early on was of Anglican um, status? Well, it's fair to say that his wife started out attending the Anglican church in Massachusetts. Of course, when I think of the Anglican church, I always tend to think of the Church of England's presence in Virginia. I say that in part because that was the predominant, or not just predominant, it was the most dominant um, religious establishment in Virginia. Uh, The Anglican church frowned upon um, the Baptists and and, uh, Methodists, if you challenged the Anglican Church in Virginia, you were severely punished. And it could have also meant uh, death if it merited uh, that uh, cause, or verdict, I should say. So here's something uh, very unique that Dr. Joseph Warren does. He purchases a church pew for 50 pounds. Now, is this to show off his status in the community? No. He's purchasing this church pew because it will allow him to, de- to depart the church secretly should a medical emergency arise that requires immediate attention. Remember, folks, there may not be modern-day hospitals in 1764 or an 18th century time in, in um, colonial America, but doctors are on call seven days a week in 18th century. They do, you never know where they might be, but they do have to find a way to um, escape um, or leave on a sudden notice without the rest of the church knowing because the last thing Dr. Joseph Warren wants is for the church to think that he is uh, bailing out on purpose and not, um, what do you call it, not devoting his time to God. Now, um, we need to find out um, who is the uh, Prime Minister of England around the time Dr. Joseph Warren gets married. And the reason we need to find this out is because um, the Prime Minister of England is the one that's really setting the tone for, for the future in terms of relations between England and her uh, 13 subjects, meaning the 13 colonies. So who is this Prime Minister of England by around 1764? His, his name is George Grenville. Why is George Grenville an important British figure? Well, here's the answer. He is the one who proposed that the colonies ought to help cover the necessary expenses on their end, given that the Seven Years' War, or a.k.a. the French and Indian War, had been fought on North American soil. It was Grenville himself who believed that taxes in colonial America were too low compared to England. 
Well, hey, there you have it. If you think taxes are too low in the uh, governing um, col- in the colonies that you are governing, here's an idea: raise those taxes. We'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> in April of 1764, Parliament passes the Sugar Act. This is going to be the start of uh, hostilities towards that infamous, towards um, that famous piece of legislation that leads to the ultimate rally cry of taxation without representation, a.k.a. the Stamp Act, which is passed a year later. But uh, the Sugar Act in April of 1764 is passed by Parliament. This piece of legislation imposes taxes on molasses and sugar to restrictions on lumber exports to duties on Madeira, which is that famous or that well-known port wine that the well-to-do could enjoy um, as an aperitif um, beverage after their main meal, to uh, indigo and coffee. It should be noted that the provision targeting uh, smuggling of goods forced the accused to not only post bond, but to stand trial in a vice-admiralty court with no jury, but to make matters worse, the trial itself would be all the way in Nova Scotia, which is a part of uh, Canada. And the colonists would, had every right to view this as a violation of their fundamental rights to due process. By due process, that means um, equal protection, life, liberty, and maybe the pursuit of happiness. But can you imagine if you um, were tried um, somewhere in Nova Scotia for a crime that did not occur in Nova Scotia, it occurred in your own colony, but yet be sent to Nova Scotia without, even without any proper representation? That, to me, is a serious, uh, or what I should say, an egregious offense right there, or an egregious offense on the part of England. And if any of you all want to know what egregious means, it's another word for inappropriate. Now, another piece of legislation that Parliament passes in 1764 that's going to really tick, uh, most notably the people of Massachusetts off, is the Currency Act. This prohibits paper money throughout all 13 colonies, but, the, but for New Englanders, they believe now that Parliament is overstepping its authoritative boundaries. I think it's fair to say this about the French and Indian War and its aftermath. The British really were the ones, um, military-wise, who made significant gains on North American soil. In other words, they acquire French and Canadian territories. What do the colonial militia units get out of this? They got diddly squat. They got nothing. So they didn't really benefit from anything. Yeah, we were fighting alongside you guys to, uh, to um, keep out uh, the Indians from invading our land, but we never got fully compensated. To me, I see that as an act of betrayal right there. What groups of people in colonial America were subjected greatly to British taxation? Those who were dependent and powerless. It ranged from servants, women and children, to those whom didn't own any property. I think that's fair to say. But 
on the flip side to it, those people in Boston who did own property came to view taxation without representation like being placed at the bottom of the social structure. In other words, those who did own property were not treated in the same way as those who owned property in England. You could say um, that there was true discrimination right there. And I think it's fair to say that many Massachusetts men had, uh, who have, whom had fought during the Seven Years' War, they came home only to be surrounded by a host of difficulties. And it was Parliament's passage of the Sugar Act in 1764 that led Dr. Warren to refrain from purchasing any English goods, which also meant that he was advocating the boycott. He was advocating all means of uh, boycotting British products. Here's a bonus question here. Despite the mounting tensions between New Englanders and um, between, yes, New Englanders and New England, did Dr. Warren's medical practice entail all ranks of Boston society? The answer is yes. He had patients that ranged from Tory families like the Hutchinsons, Hallowells, and Olivers to prominent Whig families like the Adamses, like especially John and Samuel Adams, to James Otis Jr. and John Hancock. This also included lower classes consisting of prisoners, slaves, to the middling sort, meaning the middle class, artisans, and mechanics. And it turns out that um, for Dr. Warren, his practice in terms of payment, he often would accept payment services in the form of flour, beer, and shoes. It should be fair to say that Dr. Warren's practice, or his practice alone, he treated everyone equally without prejudice to where he earned complete respect within the community. Well, folks, we have uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. But just remember this. Dr. Warren was at the right place at the right time when he administered the smallpox inoculations to so many people in Boston. I truly do wonder, had it not been for his leadership at that trying moment of time, that there would have been a greater uh, percentage of uh, deaths in the uh, town of Boston. So, in many ways, it is safe to say by now, he is beginning to be looked upon as a hero to the community, especially those who cannot um, fend for themselves, those who are, um, who are poor, uh, we might think of as being destitute. But the bottom line is now, Boston has another hero to look up to, and it's none other, none other than Dr. Joseph Warren. Thank you, and have a good rest of your evening, and I look forward to being back on the air soon. Take care.